Father, we thank you this morning that our King Jesus is also our great high priest. He who carries our sins to the cross. He who carries our prayers to you. And he who carries his people to eternity. So Father, please help us to consider him this morning as we study your word. Give us soft hearts, open eyes, and open ears, we pray in his name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4. Let me begin reading at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, please keep your Bibles open there. That'll be a huge help to us as we look at these verses together. So far in our series in Hebrews, the author of the letter has been doing whatever he can to enrich and to expand our vision and our understanding of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We've read of Jesus as the full, final word from God the Father, the greatest prophet the ultimate authoritative revelation of God, speaking with the authority that he has as both the creator of all things and the heir of all things. But Jesus is so much more than that. He is the founder of salvation. He is the word of God who became flesh, who suffered in our place for our sins so that he might cleanse us and bring us to glory. And we've been reading about these wonderful gospel realities from the author of Hebrews for a real purpose. 
The letter was written 2,000 years ago to a group of Christians who faced a pressure just to allow themselves to drift away from all the intensity, away from all of the weariness of following Jesus with all of their lives, all of the time. They felt the external pressure, the internal pressure, to live in a way that might just be a little bit more culturally compatible. Perhaps to withdraw certain elements of the gospel and instead introduce certain elements of perhaps cultural Judaism into their practices. A way in which society around about them would nod along and approve. Perhaps even to tolerate certain sins within their own lives and within their own hearts. If they just took even a slight breather from following Jesus, from listening to the word of God, that would help with the ongoing weariness that they felt, surely. And yet the author of Hebrews knows that to drift away from Jesus is so dangerous that he wants the reader to realize how much bigger, how much better Jesus is than anything else that they could turn to. And then to say to these Christians, why would you? Why would you turn away from Jesus? Anything you could turn to would only ever let you down as an inferior option, as that which cannot do what Jesus can and has done. And at this stage in Hebrews, we we might even ourselves be beginning to understand something of the grandeur, something of the splendor of Jesus as the author of Hebrews raises the curtain on the portrait that he paints of Jesus' might and Jesus' majesty. And we might begin to stand and stare in awe and amazement at the Son of God. But I wonder if at this stage in Hebrews, an eternity with him feels like it's a million miles away. Some of you might have seen photographs of Tokyo with Mount Fuji in the backdrop. And I'm told that on a clear day, when the cover clears in the city, you can see it fully you get something of its scale, something of its enormity, something of its beauty, but you're very, very aware of how distant it really is. And perhaps at this stage in Hebrews, Jesus looks bigger, better, and even beautiful, much bigger, much better, much more beautiful than he has ever looked before. But we perceive a real distance between where we are this morning and the reality of the promises that he makes rest forever. Everything that he offers at times seems so distant, so far away, and the thought of striving to enter his rest, if we're being honest with ourselves, seems unfathomably hard at times. And there will be many reasons why a genuine, committed believer like you, like me, might feel that way. The world around about us is very loud, very persuasive when it comes to telling us that it's okay to drift away from Jesus, just to soften the hard edges of what we believe. And we can very, very easily feel the temptation to sink into those sort of warm waters. It's really hard to ignore the tinnitus of that sort of temptation ringing in our ears every single day. Easy to feel the suffering that comes when we try and resist it and try and push through it all. Perhaps it's our own sin. Perhaps as Jesus looms larger and larger in our hearts, so does our memory of the times when we haven't listened to him as the word of God. Or perhaps it's the circumstances of life. 
that which relentlessly assaults us, unfairly, disproportionately, cruelly, mercilessly. Circumstances that leave us wiping tears off our cheeks, shaking our heads, harboring lingering doubts that we're going to make it at all to the end of the week, never mind eternal rest with Jesus. Even in God's own word, we see time and time again those who are his own visible people failing to enter the place of promised rest because of sin, doubt, disobedience, drifting. So what hope could we have? How will we ever make it? Is there any help available for the believer? Well, the answer from Hebrews today, and really throughout this entire next section of Hebrews through to chapter 10, is that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, our great high priest, in him we have exactly the help that we need to meet the very need that we have in the best way that it could ever be met. I'd love for us to look at this in three sections. The first section that I'd love for us to consider is at the start of chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, where we consider Jesus the great high priest foreshadowed by others. I'm sure you'll be able to think of a time when it was made very, very clear to you that you weren't able to access a building beyond a certain point. And I remember visiting a friend who works uh, still at the Scottish Parliament building in Edinburgh. And if I had tried to walk through the gate that was very, very clearly reserved for government officials only, I would not have got very far. The man who was guarding the fence was getting increasingly angrier and angrier as I even walked towards the fence to begin with. Maybe he could tell that I was from Glasgow. What I needed was for my friend to come and meet me and to represent me to the authorities to represent the authorities to me, to intervene, to intercede for me. And then I had access through her, through my friend, to the rooms, to the people that I would never have had access to on my own. And the same is true for the believer, for the individual Christian. We cannot ever hope to approach a holy God on our own strength. Every single believer, young and old, needs someone to mediate for them, to deal with the sins that would rightly separate us from a holy God, someone to plead our case to this holy God. And when functioning correctly, when when properly discharging his duties throughout the history between God and his people, as we read about it in the Old and New Testament, it was the high priest's role to represent God to the people by teaching the law, teaching the will of the Lord. And it was the high priest's role to represent the people to God by offering a sacrifice to God for the sins of of his people. And the author of Hebrews describes for us what this high priest is to be like. And there's three things that the author points out for us. So chapter 5 verse 1, we read that they are to be appointed by God, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you couldn't just one day decide that for your career you were going to be a high priest. You had to be appointed as one by God's authority. God appointed a lineage of men, beginning with Aaron, verse 4, to serve as the mediator, the priest for his people. We've met Aaron. We met him on a Sunday evening during our Exodus series. Aaron doesn't volunteer his services, but is directly named, directly appointed, chosen by God 
And his sons, his lineage, would go on to serve as priests for God's people throughout the Old Testament. So you have to be authoritatively appointed by the Lord. Secondly, you have to be humbly human in your approach. So we read in verse 2 of chapter 5 that this high priest has to be able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So the high priest is not to be harsh with the people of God for their sins. He's not to sneer at them for being spiritually inferior, but he's instead to lovingly and gently help them to know the law, to know the love, to know the faithfulness of the God that they have sinned against, to know how they might be forgiven, brought back to him. And then thirdly, verse 3, the high priest was to be sympathetic as someone who knew his own sin and also offering sacrifices as someone who needed to deal with his own sin as well as the sins of the people. Those are the blueprints, if you like, for the high priestly system according to God and his people. And it's a clear statement on God's behalf that when humanity sins, when humanity wanders from God. God continues to express a heartfelt desire to have an ongoing covenant with his people. See, it's a system that offers hope for God's people, that forgiveness could be possible, that whilst God hadn't ignored their sins, he was crafting a way for him to commune with them and for them to commune with him. But Hebrews tells us that it was always supposed to point forwards to a better greater, permanent solution to the sins and rebellion of God's people against him. See, whenever the high priest is firing on all cylinders, teaching God's word faithfully, symbolically carrying the sins of God's people to be atoned for through a sacrifice, that is the foreshadowing of a greater high priest to come and all of the work that he is going to do. It's a glorious statement of grace from God a clear sign that God is still for his people despite their sins, but it's to point forward towards something bigger, something better, something everlasting, something perfect. We then perhaps understand even more acutely the horror when the authority and the actions of the high priest are corrupted throughout God's words, corrupted by bribery, corrupted by popularity, or just a stubborn rejection of the Lord's words. We're seeing that with our own eyes in our Bible studies in Micah on a Wednesday and a Thursday, aren't we? We see the likes of which Jesus would call a den of robbers. We meet a high priest in the Gospels who would be complicit in the crucifixion of the Word of God rather than a teacher of the Word of God. What a misrepresentation of God's design. What a misrepresentation of God's desire to forgive to reconcile. But again, even the best of the best, even the high priests who really understood their role, who really got it, they could only ever take us so far. Sin still lingers in their hearts. Death eventually claims each and every single one of them. And so at this point in Hebrews chapter 5, we yearn for a high priest who knows no sin, who conquers death, who can perfectly represent us to God, who can perfectly represent God to us without any fear of corruption at all. And so with our second point this morning, the offer of Hebrews wants us to consider Jesus, 
the great high priest fulfilling both scripture and salvation. So those three qualities that are mentioned in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5 are mentioned again with Jesus, except the author wants us to see that in our great high priest Jesus Christ, once again, they are bigger and they are better. So in verses 5 and 6, we see that Jesus was also appointed authoritatively by God. And the author gives us two references to two different psalms there. The first is to Psalm 2, which we sung at the start of our service today. And it reads, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the second is a reference to the psalm that Jackie read out for us, 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the first example there is a psalm of coronation. It's a royal appointment of the divine king of God's people. And the second psalm mentions this figure, Melchizedek. He is an individual that the author of Hebrews thinks is hugely, hugely important. Someone we'll spend a bit more time getting to know over the course of the next few weeks. But what we need to know for now is that as he appears to Abraham, as Melchizedek appears to Abraham in the book of Genesis, Melchizedek at the time is someone who serves both as priest and king of Salem, the city that would most likely go on to become Jerusalem. And the author of Hebrews wants us to understand here, with these two Psalms being fulfilled by Jesus, that Jesus is a royal high priest. He is appointed as both king and great high priest. He holds and fulfills both roles and offices, and he will do so forever. And in that same way, Jesus didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but is simultaneously publicly appointed as the royal ruler of God's people and also publicly appointed for the task of high priest by God the Father. God authoritatively appoints him as both priest and king, and he fuses those roles together. And then in verse 7, we realize that Jesus too is humbly human. We read, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus lived a perfect life as a human being, never sinning once. We read that throughout the Gospels. We read that throughout the whole of God's Word. But he was assaulted by all that a broken world can throw at someone. He saw and felt firsthand the ravages and pains of a world under a curse. Jesus would know the loss of a close friend, the betrayal and abandonment of his family and closest followers, the mockery of the authorities, the forsakenness of God the Father, his own excruciating death on the cross. I'm amazed at the life that he lived, but he was truly human truly flesh and blood, in exactly the same way that we are flesh and blood. There can be no doubt of that as he knew the tears and the cries of the trials that he faced and therefore knows the depths of temptation and sorrow that every believer faces, including us. Our great high priest is truly God and truly human. And then thirdly, verses 8 and 9 read that He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made and became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Jesus, God incarnate, is sympathetic to us in our suffering and also himself the sacrifice for our forgiveness and our reconciliation. He's just like the great high priest of the Old Testament and of the Judaic sacrificial system, except he's better, he's bigger. The only thing that he didn't know was his own sin. He himself never once bowed to the expectations of the world around about him, saying to him, Jesus, can you just soften the hard edges of what you're saying? Can you just turn the volume down a little bit on this whole sin salvation thing? Who do you think you are, Jesus? He never ever once generated any single sinful thought or action from within his own perfect heart. His life as a human was one where he flawlessly demonstrated what it meant to live a life obedient to the laws of our God. And his death on the cross was one where he flawlessly fulfills God's plan for salvation as he is obedient to God's plan for salvation. He was never disobedient. He was never imperfect. But as we watch his life as a human being, we see him resist every single temptation to disobey, every single temptation to slide into the culture of the world around him, every single temptation to waver from his role as our great high priest, instead offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins that we so desperately, desperately need. And then our great high priest lives today. He is our sinless death defeater representing us perfectly to God as God incarnate, representing God perfectly to us as God incarnate. In him, there is not merely just the promise of eternal salvation, but he is the very source of eternal salvation to everyone who would believe in him. As the author of Hebrews would have us see, he is so much bigger, so much better than anything else or anyone else that we would possibly cling on to for hope. So, in response to our great high priest, Jesus. How is he going to help us to strive to enter the rest that God has promised us? Well, thirdly and finally, as we draw to a close, here's what the author of Hebrews invites and commands the Christian to do. Hold fast to our confession and confidently draw near the throne of grace. Let me read verses 14 to 16 again of chapter 4. I hope that they're packed with meaning and packed with significance, given what we've seen so far. So verse 14 of chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We mentioned earlier that there's this strong possibility that the Christians of the day were perhaps looking over their shoulder at the priestly system of cultural Judaism of the day, a much more visible and acceptable means culturally of religious practice. And local authorities and residents would have been much happier with the Christians worshipping God, their God, this way. And that may well be the reason why they were tempted to down their tools and go back to that particular system. 
But either way, the author of Hebrews says, no, you have the great high priest. You need no other priest. You have the great high priest who surpasses all of the qualifications necessary, who fulfills all that an earthly priest could ever point towards. He is eternally good, someone who yearns to forgive you fully if you ask, someone who asks you to trust in his sacrifice once for all on the cross, someone who perfectly intercedes for you today, now, as much as he did yesterday, as much as he will for eternity. In fact, look at where he is in verses 14 and 16. He has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and he beckons us close to the throne of grace, verse 16. Our Savior is both truly God and truly man in one person. Our authoritative high priest, sinless yet utterly sympathetic. I cannot think of anyone I would rather intercede for me. I cannot think of anyone I would rather mediate for me. I cannot think of anyone else I would rather have at the throne of grace begging me to come forward. I hope that gives us all an unshakable collective assurance As much as Jesus is alive, as that tomb remains empty 2,000 years ago, so my access to the throne of grace is completely clear, completely unfettered. I cannot think of anywhere else I should turn or I would want to turn. It's the privilege of the Christian to have a sympathetic brother, a sympathetic high priest on the other side at the throne of grace, whose smile warmly beckons us on every single day of our lives, the best and only place from where we would ever need to draw strength as we strive to enter God's rest once and for all. And the help that he offers does not mean being removed from the scenarios that we are in. We know that as Christians, don't we? We know that if anything, the more we relate to our high priest, the harder life seems to be, the more we seem to suffer as many temptations come our way, as many moments of mockery and scorn are ours. Help does not mean being removed from the scenario. Instead, help means prayer. The word help here means to to bind a, a sea vessel back together, which is taken a beating and needs to be held together for the rest of the journey. Doesn't that describe our lives? And the word confidence in verse 16 of chapter 4 means a confidence in speech. It means an assured willingness to talk without any fear of repercussion. Doesn't that sound like the very thing that we need? See, in our moments of difficulty, in our moments of suffering, as we strive to run the race to completion, God never asks us to search for our own inner strength or to press on without his care. Instead, he says, talk to me. Talk to me. You have no reason to hide. Speak to me about your sorrows. It's a daily discipline one that we do as individuals, one that we do together as a local church family. And as we draw strength in knowing that our God hears us, 
knowing that he will give us everything that we need to bind us together as we strive for the rest that is ours. The author of Hebrews says to us, hold on to that. Hold on to your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and draw near to the throne of grace for help. This very Jesus who sits at that throne of grace, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is nothing that you and I experience in this life that Jesus doesn't understand, that Jesus doesn't know. The pain that we feel in this life is pain that he felt 2,000 years ago and much, much more besides. It means that in those dark moments when sin seems to linger in, in my life, when the temptation of the world is just to soften what I believe, I can turn to Jesus and say, this really hurts. This is really hard. And he can say with total integrity, I know. Trust me, I know. I can say, Jesus, do you understand the depths of the sorrows and the suffering that I face? And he can say with total integrity, yes, I do. I really, really do. I think it challenges the Christian who think that they can do it on their own, who thinks that the thing which will impress God the most is to show him how much he or she can do on their own before we need to turn to God in prayer. But perhaps even more so, for the weary Christian, it encourages us and lifts us when we think that the only option is to throw in the towel and go back to something a little bit more culturally appropriate or easy. Jesus says, no, 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 help is available. Talk to me. Draw near to the throne of grace. Bring me your prayers, and I will give you everything you need to run the race to completion. See, for the weary Christian, tempted to harden to the gospel, the author says, don't harden, but hold fast. And for the weary Christian, tempted to drift, the author of Hebrews says, don't drift, draw near instead. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, our prayer very simply this morning is that you would help us to hold fast our confession and that you would continue to draw us near to the throne of grace, that we may pray to you, that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. Father, please continue to bind us up individually and together as a church family that we may strive to enter the rest that you have promised us. Thank you, Father, that you don't ask us to do this on our own strength, and yet you warmly invite us to gaze upon Jesus. And in his strength, Father, in your strength by your spirit, we will run the race, and we will know you forever. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let me read the third verse. 